welcome to Blockstars, Ripple's podcast that features leaders in crypto and blockchain to discuss the basics of those technologies, the current landscape, and the real-world problems being solved. I'm your host, Ripple CTO David Schwartz. Today, we'll explore the explosion that is central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs. Explored by curious governments worldwide, CBDCs are tokenized versions of a nation's fiat currency issued by its central bank. Aptly named, CBDCs are completely digital, for which central banks can leverage blockchain to enhance their capabilities and uses. Individuals and institutions alike stand to benefit from the growing adoption and implementation of CBDCs to solve a number of problems that many have accepted as the norm, from streamlining domestic and international payment systems, interoperating cross-border CBDC transfers, increasing financial inclusion, enhancing fiscal policy, improving retail and instant payments. The possibilities really are endless, and in any case, customizable by central banks to meet the needs of the nation's respective economies. But for technology that's still fairly nascent, you're probably wondering, how do they work? Who's using them? I'm very excited to welcome to today's episode, Ripple's very own Senior Advisor for Global CBDC Partnerships, Anthony Welfare, to answer our burning questions on all things central bank digital currencies. Anthony, welcome to Blockstars. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we'll start with an easy one, your journey. How did you get into the blockchain space? Yes, um, I started in around about 2016. Um, where I started to look at sort of Bitcoin and what was happening, you know, with the, the Bitcoin world. And I joined the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, started um, looking at supply chain, really, and the whole launch of Ethereum. So for me, I thought blockchain and supply chain and retail is actually, you know, really important. I'm going to change, um, you know, what, what happens and what this technology can do for people. And I think, you know, at that stage, then I, I sort of decided to move into blockchain as a as sort of a career and went to Oracle, started working with Oracle on their sort of blockchain services and then through to DXC, where I looked after the blockchain, um, enterprise blockchain globally. And then around about a year ago, I joined um, Ripple, where I look after the CBDCs for Europe and partnerships. So really sort of helping to, to roll out the CBDC world and, and grow the ecosystem there. So let's start with the question. I think I've asked several people this and I always get a different answer, but it's a good one to ask is what is a CBDC or how would you explain a CBDC to the general public? Yeah, it's a, it's a question that we get asked all the time as well. So for me, it's the ultimate token. Um, so it is the main currency that we use in our lives, the fiat currency, you know, the dollar, the pound, etc. In terms of a little bit more of a formal explanation, what we sort of normally talk about is a CBDC is a sovereign equivalent of a private cryptocurrency. And this is issued and controlled by the country's central bank and used by the people and businesses for retail payments. So another way to look at it is much like cash, but in a digital form. So what are some problems that a CBDC could be used to solve? There's many, many problems that this can solve. And I think there's sort of three that that I'd sort of spring to mind, the main ones that we look at. Um, And lots of people talk about the first one is financial inclusion. What that means for us at Ripple is that it's the same financial products are available to all. And so this is about the same way that you can save money, you can invest money, you can, you know, uh, uh, use money is the same for myself or my, my parents or my grandparents or anybody else in different countries and things. And so financial inclusion is not just about access to a bank account and the banking system. It's actually access to financial products for all. 
And that's what a CBDC can start to enable. And another way to look at it is think about something uh, as small and small payments for a municipality. So we have uh, municipal bonds where bonds are issued in countries or for, for towns and cities. Normally that goes to, to the wealthy people and to companies. That, using a CBDC, could go to us all as the citizens of that area. So you could basically, in a way, invest in your own city, your own you know, town, etc., and so it's really important to, to sort of think about financial inclusion in a very inclusive way. And, and the way that the CBDC works also with, um, you know, the XRP ledger is there's very low to no banking fees. So payments are obviously a lot more efficient and it, it's a better system. So it also, it, from that, it means that you can make smaller payments. So for example, you can earn 10 cents because the cost of the payment would be less than that. Whereas the current system, I don't think anybody could ever get paid 10 cents because <laughs> the system costs a lot more. And then finally, the, the main one that we actually talk about, and I think the most important for, for you know, us as, as people and, and sort of businesses, uh, we look at CBDCs as a platform for innovation. And I think it's important to understand that a payment system that's quick, efficient, and you know, low cost means that you can do more different things. You can build creative solutions. You can fix some of the world's challenges, both in your own country, but globally, with a system that enables that. And this is things like recording and content and using your content, so be it a TikTok dancer or you know, writing a blog or, you know, doing a podcast, you could actually you earn money from that, you know, one dollar, one cent or one dollar, you know, per view. And and this enables a new set of innovation and a new set of challenges. And there's lots more around the financial system, sustainability and inclusion that this can really start to help um, improve for our lives. Innovation is what helps us progress. Innovation is where, you know, we can fix the inequalities in finance. And so, you know, the, the current system, you can't do that efficiently. You can't make payments efficiently. So using a CBDC is going to help that be, you know, sending money abroad to friends and family or transacting abroad and buying things, you know, the, the things we buy online abroad, which, you know, can be a lot cheaper. And therefore you need a, you know, a cheap currency payment system to be able to do that. So I imagine there's going to be benefits to central banks, to governments, to institutions, to individuals, to small businesses. Do you see the entire ecosystem benefiting? Yes, uh, it is about benefiting the the, uh, the whole system. It's not just the the central banks and the institutions, as I you know talked about with the sort of innovation sort of angle that we look at. That does come down to everybody's small businesses as as entrepreneurs, as you know just normal people going around their everyday lives. But obviously, the benefits of a CBDC are within the large part of the financial system, so it's the central bank and commercial banks. And it allows them to restructure the cost base and make the payments cheaper, um, lower cost per unit. It also enables, uh, using DLT, it enables you to reduce fraud or at least be able to track it better. So, you know, a DLT, a blockchain, helps to give certainty and traceability. And so you can help to track where money is and what's happening and help to stop sort of bad behavior, you know, around, around the world and what's, what could and couldn't happen. And then also for the, for the larger companies, the, the banks and the institutions, it does help to change the way that the money flows in a supply chain or a value chain. Um, and, you know, we talk about the internet of value at Ripple. 
And, you know, this helps to enable the internet of value by moving value up and down the supply chain or the value chain in a lot more quicker and efficient way. So if you take a quick example of um, a supply chain for Walmart, a physical one, you know, somebody buys bananas, the bananas are sourced in a different country to where they're sold. And the banana rower may not get paid for months with the current system. With the CBDC, they could get paid technically instantly. You know, so so it, it helps move money around the system, which means less capital, less issues and complexities in the system, and obviously, a, a, you know, a better, more inclusive and innovative system. So let's start with values to institutions like banks, financial services. Are they going to be able to offer new products? Yes. So, so, you know, really down to the micropayment side of it, banks and institutions and, uh, you know, the financial inc- inclusion I mentioned uh, earlier on. They will be able to um, use different ways of programming the money or, or sort of, you know, building rules around the money of how value can move. So, for example, if um, if I make a payment for something today, but it doesn't get delivered for two weeks, how do I know when it's delivered? It's going to be, you know, that what I order, if it's going to be in good condition, etc. So it's sort of escrow, um, you know, sort of rules could be put in place so that when the, the money is takes from my account today, but when I receive the product or the service, then that can clear immediately then. So it's sort of held for two weeks or however long delivery and services. So there's areas around that which can speed up the systems. The other area to look at and think about is we live in a world where we're paid monthly. Um, we pay bills monthly. Why do we do that? We do that because the financial system today doesn't work. It's not efficient and it's not easy to use. As an institution, be it a company, be it government and, you know, paying numbers and, you know, millions of employees, you can actually technically then pay people on a daily or hourly basis. And that enables you to change the flexibility of the workforce, the flexibility of your offering and really start to adapt to a world which is a lot more creative and a lot more innovative. So cross-asset, cross-border, if there's CBDCs on both sides, is that going to improve the payment experience? I mean, ultimately, if it's the same platform for the CBDC either side, it would be absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, that that's, um, you know, one of the best places, uh, you know, uh, to be. But we we know that with every system, there's different systems. So there's, there's unlikely to be one system of CBDCs. Um, the, you know, governments tend not to agree on things. So it'd be very unlikely that every government in the world agrees on the same technology. But if they all use DLT technology, blockchain technology, and there's a set of interoperability standards, so a set of, um, you know, languages, the way that it speaks or the way that it operates, then it can make it um, better. And I think overall, whether you have a, a CBDC at one end and a, a fiat currency at the other, or a stable coin, or even a native crypto, the fact that it's digital and the fact that it's based on blockchain technology, even if it's different ones, would make it a lot more efficient. And ultimately, I think the interoperability will naturally flow. It always has done. You know, you look at the cross-border payment business within Ripple, that's where we, we started. And that is all about, you know, making the, the pounds and the dollars work together seamlessly. So I think the same type of technology using CBDCs would be more efficient and, you know, more beneficial to everyone. So what kind of interest have you seen to date? Uh, how many countries have expressed interest in CBDCs and, and what have the pilots looked like? 
Yeah, there's um, there's a lot of interest at the moment, and you know the surveys come out sort of once a month, official surveys for the CBDC tracker, um, and it, it seems that most countries are now looking at this, but there's only a few that have actually launched um, a CBDC, and actually very few have launched a sort of live CBDC. So CBDC pilots, for example, you know at Ripple, we're working with the. Um, Bhutan and with Palau. So we, we actually are in the pilot stages um, with both of those countries, one an island nation and one a sovereign nation as well. And, you know, we learn a lot through that and we're progressing and hopefully one of those will become nearer to, to live sort of in the next year or two. China has um, officially a CBDC, but it's not based on the same technology. Um, Bahamas and Jamaica and places like that um, have you know, some real life pilots, but still very small. You're talking about, you know, only a few million transactions, but it's gaining momentum. And, you know, just this year in the last, you know, sort of even in the last six months, the momentum is growing. And, you know, we talk to central banks globally all the time and they're more and more interested in it. And it, it, it is only going to get quicker and quicker. And the technology obviously is is all is getting better as well. So I think better technology and better understanding means that this is going to grow quickly over the next few months and into the next years. You think we could see something where emerging countries kind of skip the earlier technologies like we saw with countries that skipped landlines and went right to mobile? Could we see countries that skip the kind of banking system that we built here and jump right to CBDC-based systems? Yeah, 100%. It's, um, you know, for me, um, I've come from a retail background and I saw where the um, mobile commerce um, took over very quickly and was very quickly adopted in um, some of the emerging economies versus some of the Western economies where they went through a very slow process from physical to telephone, et cetera, et cetera. So what happens if you look at the emerging economies is they have mobile phone access and all you need for a CBDC is a, you know, a wallet, which is normally held, a digital wallet, which you'd hold on a phone. Um, you can't, can't do it offline. And so they can move quicker because one, they've already got a very high penetration of mobile phone and usage. Secondly, their payment systems are not as advanced as the West. So the benefits of a CBDC are much more important and impactful in emerging economies. And thirdly, they tend to have a more innovative, less regulatory, less, you know, slow moving government and regulatory sort of environment. So that means that actually they can do this. And if you think about it for the US, you know, there's, there's, 250 million people is something around that number. If you're talking about a CBDC for that, that's lots of wallets, lots of accounts. It's going to take a long time. But if you look at an an island nation of 20,000 people, it's a lot easier to set up. It's still big, you know, 20,000 accounts plus. It's a lot easier to implement that and work out the risks and how that will work. So Emerging economies are definitely taking the the lead on this and the smaller nations, and they will benefit quicker and actually they'll get some international benefits. The the larger economies and the more established ones will then start to learn what works and then be able to catch up, um, you know, over the next few years. Yeah, I think what it will take to move those countries is they're going to have to see these smaller countries build and deploy successfully and get benefits that they don't have. And if, you know, suddenly payments work better in Palau than they do in the UK, like that's going to get the UK to be like, wait, why are we lagging behind these smaller countries? But I think also 
the challenge is that the systems seem to work well for the people who use them. Like a lot of our listeners are probably in the United States and they make almost exclusively domestic payments. And United States domestic payments work pretty well for what people use them for. Your employer can't easily pay you every day, but they don't try to do that because it doesn't work well. They stick to what works well. And of course it works well because that's, you know, they, they're, they're living inside the bounds of the system and the system works within its bounds almost by definition. So I think it's going to take them seeing other countries that build these newer technologies, getting better experiences and having access to new products, more innovation that, that the larger countries don't have before they're going to be willing to, you know, do something that may not provide obvious massive benefits in the short term. You know, that's absolutely correct. And the other side of it as well is is not just letting the smaller company countries move forward because they need to, but also um, it's the risk factor. The risk factor of implementing this in the US is, you know, is it 250 million people? It, yeah. it's- I have to say it is encouraging the interest that central banks have shown, given that they are probably the most conservative organizations on the planet. You know, like the Federal Reserve's reputation is a critical part of people's ability, people's willingness to engage with the U.S. economy globally. So they are very, very cautious in what they do. Yes, they, you know, as we, as we sort of mentioned, a large economy, especially like the Fed, has to be, you know, very risk averse. You can't risk the, the currency and the, the, the nation, such as the U.S. or any other, you know, country. So they have to be risk averse. They've got a lot to think about, a lot of challenges. And we're talking about new technology and, and it will transform the world and it is innovative, but it still has to work with a system that exists today and be safe and secure for the people. So another area to help with the conservative nature of central banks is around education. Um, it's very important and, and something that we do at Ripple all the time is educating the central banks, the institutions and everybody around this, the regulators as well, on you know the benefits of this technology and actually how it works, why it works and the importance for the people. So it's, it's something that, that we find very important at Ripple and we have education programs for central banks uh, and everyone else around this how it will help us, how it can be used, and how the innovation can can happen from CBDCs. Yeah, I think we saw the same thing, like on the payment on the enterprise payment side, where banks were very conservative and very slow moving, and it took more aggressive organizations like payment service providers who were willing to move more quickly. And then the banks are start to feel like they're getting left behind. And it took that kind of pressure of seeing these other success cases. It's unlikely, it's not impossible, but it's not that likely, for example, the United States or the UK are going to be like industry leaders in deploying CBDC for real because the risks are so much higher. I think it's probably going to take the, at least at least pilots that are successful by smaller countries that they can look at and say, oh yeah, this stuff really does work and it really does provide benefits. I think you really need to provide them this sort of almost conclusive proof. You have to have undeniable evidence that there are benefits because they're just not risk-taking organizations. So what has come out of the pilots? Yes, I, I, it's absolutely right. You know, the the um, larger nations want proof and categorical proof that this works. Um, I think you know both from Palau is slightly different to Bhutan in in what we're doing there. So Palau is an island nation which uses the U.S. dollar. So in essence, it's a U.S. dollar stablecoin that we're building there. And Bhutan is a sovereign nation with its own currency. So that's a what you, you probably class as a full CBDC. Um, I think um, in Bhutan is interesting because it, we've wanted to work with them around the financial inclusion and making sure that people have access to the system. So that's one of the first parts. But you have to start with the wholesale bank in the 
bank-to-bank side of it. So that's where we started first. We're now starting to talk at the retail side. But interestingly, uh, one of the most interesting points from uh, Bhutan is actually the way that we're working with them is they need to use cash for their religious ceremonies and they need to have a, a crisp note to take to these. That's the solution that we need to come up with. We need to understand how to do that. So what's happening with these smaller nations is they're showing us the real issues in, in countries that need fixing, the real challenges with you know a CBDC. So we have to think through that, as well as things like in an island nation, they unfortunately suffer from really bad weather at times, which the electricity goes out or the Wi-Fi goes down. How do you make payments then if you don't have paper and coins? So the, these smaller nations are showing us, yes, we're, we're on the right track. People can use this. It's more efficient. The bank-to-bank payments are great and, and a lot simpler. But the actual, the human side of it and how people operate is where we're now working and learning so much from these countries. Like a threat to dollar dominance, for example. Like if there was some credible threat to dollar dominance, like that, like I know it's kind of a fantasy here, but like if there was some other country, you know, let's say a large country like, you know, China or Russia that like implemented some system that was some sort of threat to dollar dominance, then you could see the United States responding. You know, if they thought that a technological solution was the best solution, they probably you would see a priority that you wouldn't see under any other scenario, despite their their natural conservatism. Yes, I mean there is a whole discussion about dollar dominance around this, and I think um, one of the things that happened um, three or four years ago was Facebook announced that they were going to do the DM coin, um, their own sort of coin. Within, I think it was about a day or twenty-four hours or something, the Senate in the U.S. was talking about that. Because they realized that if, you know, this Facebook, um, it was Libra coin originally, would be a basket of coins, a stable coin globally, why would you need the dollar? You could, you envisage everybody in the world using a, you know, this coin. Now, obviously, that's, that's, it's just not the way the systems work in and it may never work that way. But, um, that really did give the, the impetus for the larger, um, countries to think about how to do this. And China's pushed ahead. China has a CBDC. It may not be a CBDC that we would use with a blockchain that we would use an XRP ledger type solution, but they do have a digital version of their currency, which means that they could demand that payments for trade is made in a digital one, which is highly, highly challenging to the US. So I think there's a lot of things happening in the US now. Um, they're, 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 there's lots of discussions and it's moving forward. So I think those two sort of reasons helped the catalyst to, to move forward these discussions. Wow. Thanks, Pat. I've made the argument several times, like one of the common pushbacks that we used to get in the very early days is why wouldn't you just use a centralized database? What's the advantage of digital ledger technology? And I always come back to security and reliability. Security obviously being absolutely critical here. You look at like conventional financial systems and you have to have 24-hour cybersecurity response to be part of them, and they rely on secure endpoints. And then you look at public blockchains like Bitcoin, Ethereum, the XRP ledger. These systems handle billions of dollars, and they're completely open to anyone to attack, and they have higher reliability and a better security record. It's it's quite astonishing. Yes, the, the, there is a, a challenge between centralized databases and DLT technology, and I think the you know you, you mentioned the, the amount that goes through the this sort of public blockchains you know XRP and um, Bitcoin the the part for central banks and for for central bank currency is they still need to control their monetary policy and their fiscal policies etc so you, you do need some uh, control around this and what DLT gives you is actually 
access to know who is who is on the network, um, access to the network, so you decide on a on a permission basis who accesses it. And then the other point uh, for me is that it's really the a centralized system, a current database, is actually not built for the world we live in. And one of the, the the things we talk about is a decentralized ledger is built for for the world we live in, where you don't know what's going to happen next. It's built for an imperfect world where things do go wrong, and and that's why Bitcoin Network and XRP Ledger is so successful because it's not owned by one company, one person, one organization. It is a fully decentralized network. So if nodes go down, there's other nodes, and it's got the the resilience. It's got the you know the the ability to just keep things moving nicely. So um, I, I think that's why, you know, you wouldn't use a centralized database in this world. But the decentralized part is probably less decentralized for a central bank than the XRP ledger or Bitcoin to start off with. Maybe not in the future. So how can the XRP ledger technology be used for a CBDC? Yes, yeah, so the um, so the XRP ledger is is sort of it, it, I mean it's built for payments and value transfer. So you know it it, it is what we're talking about is that's its fundamental basis. So how to use it? I mean the CBDC solution that we use is actually taken from XRP ledger, a private version of it, and then it's now upgraded and we add a CBDC manager so that you can mint, maintain, and manage. The, the most important thing is it is based on XRP Ledger. And that means that anything that is on XRP Ledger could then be used with a CBDC Ledger. So if there's, you know, apps and additional, you know, layer two solutions that are built on either, you know, the CBDC Ledger could go to XRP Ledger and vice versa. And also importantly, from my perspective is that Longer term, countries may decide to use a public blockchain. And obviously, XRP Ledger is public and it's, it's totally decentralized. And the, the ledger could be, in my view, non-technical, a quite an easy switch from a CBDC solution built on the same basis. I'm sure the tech people wouldn't say it's as easy, but um, it's, it's the same technology and therefore it's got more chance to be able to use in that way. I think the thing that's most exciting to me is seeing the CBDC systems be interoperable just because international payments are just so expensive. Things like remittances are just so expensive and the experiences are so bad. And the people who are who are harmed by that are, you know, some of the very poor people. Yeah, definitely. hundred percent. I think the you know, the the fact that we use XRP ledger as the basis and and then put the areas and the the, the solutions around it for a central bank means that it is used in the benefits of XRP Ledger, which is, you know, efficient, small value transactions. So we could get to the stage where we can be paid. Immediately we finish this podcast, we can get paid 10 cents or $1, whatever we get paid. So I think it's absolutely, and the interoperability side of it means that we can interoperate with existing fiat, with other CBDCs, with stable coins and native crypto. So it's, it's a very exciting place to be now. So let's talk about Biden's executive order on the development of digital assets. And the administration has tasked itself with increasing research and development into design and deployment of potentially a U.S. CBDC. So is that validation? Is the U.S. really taking this seriously? What do you think that's going? Yeah, I think, you know, as, as we mentioned before about the, the Libra coin and things like that set off this whole uh, global, really, discussion. But U.S. really, really got hold of this. And I think, you know, Biden's order is is great to move things forward. Um, we're definitely seeing positive actions and discussions. Um, how quickly it ends up moving and, and what the solution looks like is still 
in discussion and, and we still don't know. But I think the fact that this has been put in place and they're trying to review this and make it happen is, is actually a very good place to be. And it's hopefully will, will help us move things forward quicker. So is it fair to say that once you have the central bank's buy-in, the regulatory problems pretty much fall away because regulators don't really question the central banks? Uh, they say the central banks versus regulators and regulators versus central banks is always the issue, the discussion really here. It's, um, it's the chicken and egg scenario. Um, the regulators tend to lag and they tend to be behind. Uh, that's why the innovators and, um, you know, are always ahead and quite often get in trouble because they're, they're very much ahead. The regulators are behind and they're trying to catch up. Slightly different with central banks and CBDCs because they're, they're very similar in terms of they're very institutional and, uh, you know, very risk averse. And so it's moving forward. Some of the central banks are very innovative. So some of the central banks we're working with really want to push the boundaries and their regulators are working with them. Others, the regulators, I think, are probably working against them a bit. So it's never going to change. Innovation is always the opposite to regulation and it always is ahead of it. So I'll ask you to take out your crystal ball for a second and ask you how long before you think we see some of the first CBDC deployments that can produce tangible benefits? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely coming up. <laughs> now, when that is, I don't know. I'd, I'd say realistically, uh, for smaller nations, one to two years. Um, for the larger nations, you know, the, the US, the ECB and uh, Japan, etc., the UK, you're realistically talking about five years plus um, still. Now, that doesn't mean we won't do trials and tests in the meantime, but I think to be able to start to use it to get the benefits because you need the network effect of it, it still will take time. So, um, I, you know, I'm sort of three to seven years sort of, um, of, of where we'll really start to see the benefits from this. Do you think individual citizens of these smaller nations will see the benefits in the short term? I think they will because most of the smaller nations are have less advanced payment systems. And so one of the things CBDC does is is help to improve the payment system. It makes it faster, cheaper, uh, more instantaneous. You can do micropayments. So I think it, it helps move their countries forward. And as we talked earlier, leapfrog uh, some of the, the more mature um, countries. The finance system today is is inefficient and is it you know it's unequal. So a, a CBDC is going to really help that inequality and you know unequalness by allowing smaller, more efficient, cheaper transactions. So you can transact with very small amounts, which means that you know people can get a, a fairer share of the money that's flowing around. You don't need to just do big, expensive transactions. So I think it's very important for the future. Oh, we're just about out of time. But before I let you go, do you have an interesting story to share with us? Hopefully CBDC related or not. Yeah, I think um, one of the things, you know, I mentioned just before around the the physical side of a CBDC. And, uh, you know, we talked about Bhutan and the religious ceremony where you need a note. And I think that's the, the most interesting part is we're talking about CBDCs and a digital currency. But there's the whole physical side of it that still needs to be thought about and we still need to, to work out. And I think that's a, you know, a bit of an oxymoron for us to work out how to do that offline payments, uh, disaster payments and things like that when we're moving from uh, a physical digital world to a pure digital world. And yeah, it's, it, it's very interesting to think that through and a, a lot of work that we're doing there. Thank you, Anthony, for joining me today. Great to hear your take on CBDCs. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. 
If you have any questions for us, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Joel Katz, J-O-E-L-K-A-T-Z, or to Anthony at Anthony Welfare, A-N-T-O-N-Y-W-E-L-F-A-R-E. And remember to follow Ripple on Twitter to keep up with the latest industry news. See you around the blockchain. Thank you.